The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GUARDIAN to get 10% off. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, the four sale signs go up at The Independent. We find out which BBC presenter thinks the corporation is too big. And is a two-speed internet about to come to the US? Plus, we talk TV with The Guardian, Sam Williston and Rebecca Nicholson. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And joining me this week are Emily Bell, Professor and Director of the Tau Centre for Digital Journalism, and Media Talk regular Maggie Brown. Welcome both. Hello. Hello, John. Hello. Uh, all the way from New York, I should have added, Emily, if, if listeners can't already tell. That's right. How's the cold? Terrible. It's all, it's all the fault of the polar vortex. Well, first up this week, we start with The Independent, which is now officially up for sale. The paper's founder and chairman of its publishing company, Andreas Whittam-Smith, has been charged with finding a buyer for the paper, which is, of course, owned by Alexander Lebedev and his son, Evgeny. Up for sale is The Independent, The Independent on Sunday, and its 20p spin-off, The Eye. Despite the success of The Eye, or some might say because of it, The Independent's sales have long been in freefall, and in the last ABCs it had an average daily sale of just 67,000. The worst news was that full-price sales were just 44,000. And the eye, for completion's sake, if you like these sort of stats, had a headline sale of nearly 300,000 in comparison. Emily, I guess the question is, what happens next? Oh, well, who knows? It's not a great time to be buying newspapers, that's for sure. Um, uh, I think we were just discussing this before we started recording. The Lebedevs have only owned it since 2010. Is that right? That's right. Uh, so I think, you know, two things. There is not a news organisation in the world that has newspaper attached to it, which is not currently thinking about what to do with print in the media, you know, medium future and sometimes the short-term future. In America, we've already seen a number of uh, newspapers here. Either, well, we've seen a lot of newspapers close. Uh, we've seen those who survived also looking at sort of cutting cutting days of of, of newsprint out of their offering. The question is, is there any value really in the independent brand? Um, And the other question is that if you're looking at the news market at the moment, what excites you more? Does buying something which is actually had such an impact when it launched, uh, but really is now sort of a a feeble size uh, in terms of um, hard copy sale, and it's not got enormous reach or influence online, what does one, uh, you know, would you invest in that or would you actually put the money into something which was uh, a purely digital play uh, where you could build it how you wanted it to be, um, where you're not taking on any of the, um, any of the uh, legacy costs? I mean, don't forget this as well as another huge issue for newspapers, which is most of them have property and pension costs, which are actually just not going to be met by the revenues they're going to get from sale and advertising in the future. No shortage of sympathy for, for the staff on the papers at a time uncertainty but you used to work at the independent of course well, i was one of the founders of the independent newspaper and I, back in 1986 i was its first media editor and in fact i helped write uh, part of the business plan for a paper that was actually going to be contract printed rather than own, owning or having these very vast and expensive uh, presses and all of the paraphernalia that at that point went along with with newspapers in the unreformed era. So this was a moment of opportunity. And if you remember, too, the Independent stood for It Is Are You, Independence, in other words. This was its marketing ploy. But it was also 
a true editorial principle in the opening years. But of course, it's been like a Houdini. It's managed time and time again to basically escape from what appears to be its financial fate. I think ever since it started a, a Sunday paper in 1991 in the, in the teeth of the recession at that point, it was fatally wounded and it went on to be given a real dose of salts by David Montgomery in 95. That was the point I left. It's gone through permutations, the compact size, etc., etc., and of course, it's it's also, I thought quite bravely, under the Lebedevs, actually started this cut price but very accessible cut down tabloid version, which most certainly is appealing to young metropolitan readers. So, I understand everything that has just been said <laughs> by Emily, and that it doesn't look like a time that other people wish to buy newspapers. I just somehow, in a Houdini type of mood, hope that it manages to escape the fate of closure or extermination and that there is some value left. It doesn't actually have, I don't think, a lot of huge legacy costs. And we've also seen, too, uh, over the past six months, a very ruthless culling of its most expensive and experienced columnists and uh, staffers and and, and writers. So it, it is pretty much probably a low-cost uh, editorial proposition, but without marketing and without well, without sales and without the advertising that goes along with it. And, of course, as Emily rightly says, without this very big investment now in the digital side. Emily, lots of papers rely, of course, on, on rich owners who take on these uh, titles who are prepared to take a, and can afford to take a, a big loss year after year, such as, of course, you know, Jeff Bezos at the, at the Washington Post. But who's, who, I wonder who's going to take over the Independent. The rumour had it before Christmas it was going to be Charles Saatchi, but I think that one's faded away a bit. I mean, that would, well, be, a, that would be a fun story, if true. He can probably do with his own newspaper. Um, <laughs> and he's always had a long, he's had a long-term interest in journalism. I don't mean that sort of satirically, but he was one of the people who sort of helped, um, who, who inspired uh, Campaign Magazine all those years ago. Yes, it does need a, it needs a rich owner. It sort of found that in Lebedev in a way, um, but obviously, you know, there are, there are two things there, one of which is Lebedev's own wealth. It seems to have been diminishing fast. Yes, tends to be, it tends to be in flux and, and mostly flux, flux in a downward way. I'm going to say it now, I don't see anybody buying it. Well, certainly not for any money. I think it would be probably one of those kind of like free exchange things in, in exchange for, for investment. I fully sympathise with Maggie and think that it's such a shame when something which uh, shaped our own sort of journalistic careers and was, was always there looks like it's on the way out. But we have to be really realistic about this, which is that the independent is the, is the smallest player in a really shrinking U- UK newspaper market. The UK supports way more newspapers than is rational. And you have to have somebody who can invest long term in a brand and you have to have something which has a strategy that goes really beyond the UK. I hate to say it, well, I don't hate to say it actually, but you look at the current portfolio of national newspapers in the UK and you would pick out The Guardian and The Financial Times as having some sort of sustainable future, partly from The Guardian's point of view because of a funding model that that, that works uh, with cross-subsidy. And on The Financial Times' side, because they actually have a revenue stream that comes from digital subscription. But the, the key thing about both of those is that they both have international presences and they've both invested very heavily in digital and they did it pretty early and pretty consistently. Uh, if you haven't done that and you're a newspaper now, I'm, a so- I'm sorry, but there isn't really a future for you. Okay, and as far as the Lebedevs are concerned, uh, Maggie, if they're putting all their eggs in, in the basket of the London Evening Standard, which of course they've taken free and done that very successfully. And uh, London Live, the yes. local TV service, which, which is going to launch, uh, it, it was re- revealed this week on the 31st of March. But I mean, 
you know, hats off to the standard. But, uh, you know, as far as local TV, in the, even in the capital goes, that still feels like an enormous gamble. Well, it does. On the other hand, they're increasing their print run of the standard in order to, as it were, increase their advertising hegemony over what is, after all, the most prosperous part of the UK. One possibility for the uh, London Live license is that there are other licenses in contiguous areas in the southeast, this wealthy kind of mini-state within within Great Britain, uh, that, are, that are also coming up for contesting. And so if they manage to get London Live away with anything like a viable business plan, and that's a big if, they have the possibility of creating a larger television franchise, if you like, in the southeast. Now, this is all to be played for and they're in the process obviously of developing a business that may or may not work so it is hard to predict the outcome but that there is some form of logic to that my final point about the independent is maybe it just becomes a weekly and becomes a sort of interesting new form of new statesman type of title uh, well emily your thoughts on that but also on london live it's going to have five and a half hours of news a day uh, at least one hour of original current affairs programming a day and uh, bung in a load of Channel 4 reruns such as Peep Show and Spaced, all in a budget of uh, £15 million a year. Yeah, so I've kind of missed this. Is this not the same as we had the Daily Mail doing, what was it called? Uh, Channel, the, the, Channel, Channel 1. Channel 1. Channel 1, that's right, which was going to be, you know, the great revolution in, in, in local broadcasting. Something's going to happen here, which is that the cost of production and distribution is eventually going to sort of meet the market, I think. And that means, what I mean by that is, eventually somebody will get a local news service for London right, in that it won't cost very much money. And very few but enough people will watch it to actually to actually make money. I have to say, looking at this, I don't think that this is necessarily the plan. I mean, there is this thing called the internet now, where apparently where apparently people do watch television shows whenever they like. It's amazing. There's not even a schedule. Uh, so 50, 15 million a year sounds like a low budget. But I would question first t- two things. First of all, even in a digital newsroom, 15 million a year is not very much to do a lot of on-the-ground journalism, particularly not if you're talking about having video and television. In one way, one of the things that, that London has always lacked is that kind of good, live, sparky news service. And it's a very difficult market to address with that because basically you don't care. If you live in Highbury, I speak from personal experience, you don't really care what happens in you know, Peckham or Mayfair. I feel like the doom monger um, this morning, but it, it feels again, it feels like the Lebedevs are just getting into a market a little bit late in a slightly old-fashioned way. There is something to be said for you know, milking money out of these kind of declining assets, but it's not clear to me that this is sufficiently radical. I think if they'd, if they'd launched something that was much more sort of oriented to a mobile video audience that was much less about scheduling and much more about a kind of a, a live sort of brand for London, um, that it might stand a chance. Emily, one of the good sides of this is that they are proposing a whole range of news online sites really zoned for, for the capital. So it does meet one of your objections. I mean, I don't know if they're going to be able to get the right sort of 
content from people probably providing videos for free but there is the chance that that you can far more easily segment and pick off key areas and indeed interest groups within the capital of which there are very many uh, and and that of course does does imply perhaps interactive advertising and other kinds of more targeted um, messages to people in marketing I think that that sounds promising. I mean, what I would do is point to the ex- experience of New York here, and there are some local news, new local news services here, like DNA Info, which is really challenging the tabloids in in New York. It hasn't got a kind of a, a huge video offering, uh, but there's also another sort of local service called Capital New York, which has just re- recently been bought by Politico. It's hard to get money out of these, even these sort of relatively rich local markets. I mean, one thing which I think is really interesting, which I should should have said, and, and, and as Maggie says, her, her points kind of address this, which is London is becoming, last time I was out, I couldn't believe the number of sort of, you know, Ferraris and Bugattis and things in, in central London. And I know this has been a sort of a commentary in, in the UK. It's not sort of necessarily sort of noted that much outside. But the kind of wealth gap in London seems to be increasing in a, in a dizzying way. So one thing that's for sure, you know, the capital does not lack money. But whether or not that money is coming in through people who are likely to form any part of a kind of a regular audience for these things is, is a different matter. Um, I'm sure that there's an audience that could be supported by not-for-profit or special interest or all these niche sites, which is really very much the way that news is going. You know, new things should always be applauded. And perhaps I'm perhaps I just have too much of that sort of channel one kind of <laughs> lodged in the back of my mind, and I and I should should give it a, bit, a, a fair chance. But they have to be a little bit more kind of radical in terms of kind of mobile and digital delivery. Okay, well, that's enough doom-mongering, Emily. I can guarantee an upbeat part two, almost. Next up, well, if we had the budget for it, there'd be a little jingle and maybe some sort of, I don't know, American-themed New Orleans jazz, maybe. And we'd say, now time for the US media news with Emily Bell, live from New York. But uh, we haven't got that. So, Emily, in its absence, uh, what's been going on stateside? Well, um, we promised more upbeat news, and I'm happy to say that we don't have any. Uh, uh, Now, the big news here this week has been around something called net neutrality. Um, So this is where your policy listeners become very interested and everybody else has a five-minute nap. But stay (laughs) with me. Stay with me because it's really, really important. Lean in, Um, everyone. Yeah, so what happened uh, this week was that a circuit court in uh, Washington decided that what we call the Open Internet Order, which is the essentially the FCC's rules that say everyone should have equal access to the internet. And that's um, the American Ofcom, the FCC. Yeah, we're effectively sort of uh, overturned, and a couple of the really important rules um, that underpin it uh, were, were thrown out. There's something called no blocking rule, which means that broadband providers couldn't say no to lawful content or apps or services or whatever, and that's gone. And then, crucially, the anti-discrimination, what they call the anti-discrimination rule. And what it allows broadband providers to do, essentially, is decide that there is a two-speed internet. And that has all sorts of ramifications. It means that, at one end, venture capitalists and entrepreneurial investors will look really carefully at new apps and services that people are pitching to them. Say Verizon uh, likes your app, John, and says, we like your app, so we're going to carry it free with our service, and we're not going to charge people sort of data rates on it. 
I come along with with what I think is a much better app. Now, previously it would have just kind of been in the app store and everybody bought on on equal footing, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now someone like Verizon could say. I'm sorry, actually, we have this app. It's John's app. It's great. We don't have to accept yours. So the data charges on it will be incredibly high. Some people also say that it will create a two-speed whereby you have this sort of rich internet of the big companies who can afford to cut deals with telcos and providers like sort of mobile providers like like Verizon. And then you'll have the public internet, which is slow and not invested in and uh, becomes, as, as lots of people have been using the analogy here this week, as a sort of almost like a kind of like a rundown uh, neighbourhood that nobody's putting any money into. What chance of the same thing happening in the UK? I mean, is it, has it been discussed over here? And uh, is, that, is, that a, is it a realistic prospect? The UK has a slightly different relationship to providers and carriers in that they are much more tightly regulated than they are in the US. The problem with this is it kind of opens a precedent and it opens a precedent for everyone. As I say, and the other problem with it is that you can't really view the internet as being segmented on a local basis. I mean, this may apply mostly to American companies, but then when you think about a lot of the innovation, it comes out of America. You know, if you think about the services that people use, Netflix, Apple, uh, etc., then and you and you can easily see a situation where uh, UK carriers lobby Ofcom on, on, a, sim- on a similar basis. They have to face up to a very formidable Patricia Hodgson who um, has about to become the chairman of uh, Ofcom and uh, as the former sort of BBC director of policy and everything else, I imagine that she'll be very hot on universal access. Yeah, I think that, you know, universal access has always been an underpinning of of UK services. But it's worth saying that that's also true in the States when it comes to telephone services. One of the things which is currently being much debated here is whether or not the FCC can reclassify these broadband internet services, not as information services, which they are at the moment, but actually as as telephone services, in which case they would then fall under the, the universal access rules. Okay, thanks, Emily. Well, we're going to return to the UK now, and we've got an extended uh, Media Monkey quiz, which is a thinly veiled, or or not veiled at all, uh, attempt to wrap up the rest of the week's media news. So we're going to start with, uh, who said this week that the BBC was a profound force for good, but said the corporation was just too big? It was John Humphreys, the uh, Radio 4 Today presenter. Slightly unfair, That's Emily. Very sorry, unfair. How can um, Emily know Maggie that? was actually at, at the uh, Media Society. Do uh, so. Sorry about that. And great fun it was too. But tell us a bit about Humphreys. What did he have to say, Maggie? Well, he said a lot of things. He said that the BBC was too big, but at the same time, it had this, as you say, very profound impact. He talked a lot about how he didn't really prepare for his big uh, interviews at uh, ten past eight on Radio Four, unless it was the Prime Minister, because he tended to go to bed and turn. He well, he turned off his phones at half past six in the evening. He then went into his library in his house and read fiction and then he's reading Love in the Time of Cholera at the moment by Gabriel Garcia Marquez or at least he's, at least he's reading it again and then he would go to bed until his two alarm clocks go off uh, just before four o'clock it was the most extraordinary insight into and into a very cold bedroom because he doesn't like hot bedrooms so that means he has to leap <laughs> out in the morning Good knowledge, and, uh, and too, much, too much information, too much information. <laughs> yes it, it was fascinating he's also very concerned um, Emily about um, social media and, and, and special interest groups uh, trying to collar the news agenda because they're not representative and he's also worried oh, yes. about oh. about the future of training of journalists now there are no local newspapers or indeed probably no national newspapers of any size left in the future. 
No, there are some excellent journalism schools out there, I understand. But but no, his yes, I was going to say. Of course, social, of course, especially in, in New York. Social media, that great that great um, threat to uh, the view of BBC editors. Um, <laughs> who have previously been a very strong special interest group when it comes to, gosh, I sound very radical. <clears throat> I've spent too long in the free market. Actually, what was really interesting about him was that he started work on the Penarth Times at 15 and was a sort of foreign correspondent and doing all sorts of things in his sort of early, mid-20s. It was a talk about a stellar career, which just took off and took off and took off. He claims that uh, journalists just need luck, really, to be in the right place at the right time to have a career that's, you know, in the very top tier that you can't do much else really and hope that somebody notices you all right second question second question who was it uh, this week said that it was in the it was in the bbc's vested interest to have more people uh, immigrating into the uk oh dear this is another one for me i'm afraid it's david elstein the i'm giving former. you a chance emma <laughs> former chief executive of channel five and b sky b and of course before that um itv executive um, Emily, David Elstein, long time, he always says he supports the BBC, but, uh, you know, he, he sort of falls into the very, very, very critical thing category, I think. Well, he's, he's always been doing, for, for years, for at least a decade and possibly more, he's been doing this household math, math on the BBC, which says, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a hidden increase in the licence fee, which is the increase in number of homes in the UK. A 50% you know, like, which, increase, 50% increase in households over two decades, is what he told the Culture Media Sport Committee yesterday. Yes, which is so, so, which is. Actually, it is a good point. David Elstein is a smart guy. I think he's tying this to the the very idea that the BBC News is organised enough to have a strategy to not cover immigration, which actually, you know, kind of lots of people have said, in fairness, it hasn't been doing properly. To boost the licence fee is, I'm afraid, a bit laughable. Yeah, but what he did say, he didn't. He ha- has actually spotted this point, which I think people have slightly lost sight of, is that now that the licence fee has been top-sliced and it's paying for these other things from Welsh Channel 4 yeah. to uh, local TV that we were talking about, part of it, and uh, digital uh, inclusion that it's in the government's interest to continue the BBC licence fee. So at the moment, he is giving evidence because we're just at the start of the debate about the next BBC charter. But I would suggest that actually the the, the licence fee and the charter are clearly going to be renewed. The issue for the BBC is how much it hangs on to of the licence fee when it's under the new regime in 2017. And from the look of things, it may not be as much as it has now, not the same proportion. As uh, Steve Hewlett said to MPs, yeah, the question is what kind of deal the BBC has to do with the government in order to keep the licence fee. Last time around it was World Service, this time around, you know, who knows, over 75s, what next? All right, question number three, who is leaving Sky News after 25 years? Adam Bolton. Adam Bolton, in with a bullet. (laughs) Sorely missed, Emily, about to be. I know nothing else, but I know that he's leaving. There you go, well, brief to the point. And question number four, uh, let's call it the bonus question. Uh, who detected uh, an enormous amount of left-wing bias at the BBC, not on its news bulletins, but in its uh, rather a popular uh, drama hit, Sherlock? That was the Daily Mail. Because Daily they had Mail. Sherlock reading The Guardian, amongst other things. Numerous things. And, of things. course, they Sherlock. had uh, yep. the, oh, Charles Augustus Magnusson, the press foreign owner, who, who was deeply sinister. Apparently, some people detected a touch of Rupert, a very small 1% touch of Rupert Murdoch. I, I left that for you to add as a right. quiz master. And there was also that subliminal newspaper reference to Boris Johnson. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, so, Emily, I mean, c- clearly this is a bit of a lighthearted thing all round, except perhaps in the Daily Mail offices. But at the same time, you do think, you know, does the BBC help itself when it kind of chucks this? Maybe not, maybe not the Murdoch-esque character, but, you know, putting in the pop at Boris Johnson in, the, in this you know, newspaper and, you know, doesn't help itself sometimes. 
a freedom, artistic expression, freedom of artistic expression. If that's what you know, if that's what Stephen Moffat wants to do, then who is the BBC to say uh, ch- you, you know change it? And if people don't, you know, people can always vote with the off switch. What what, what the BBC don't help themselves with is getting into a tizzy over things like Sherlock and hopefully Tony Hall, who's a very cool-headed, clear-sighted character, will say this is a lot of fuss about nothing and, and carry on because I think you know the Daily Mail may well disappear into its own polar vortex. What we will see over the next two years as, as we go through license fee renewal, I hope somebody is blogging somewhere, the Daily Mail on a daily basis, just to, uh, just to demonstrate how rabid its, its, its BBC coverage is. At the same time, the B- you know what the BBC should have? They should have a reader's editor. They don't have a reader's editor and they really need one. And is, is Sherlock back in the US yet, or is there sort of fevered anticipation? Fevered anticipation, not in this. Well, actually, my nine-year-old is very excited about it, but it is, um, it's, it's premiering sometime very soon. Doctor Who here is, now is massive. Sherlock is, 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 is hard on its heels. You know, we love, we love a bit of the, the, the UK. We love the British accents over here, as you may have heard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and for completists, uh, the final score was uh, Maggie 3, Emily 1. But I think that's, uh, you know, the, the time delay doesn't help, surely, uh, Emily, in your... Uh... No, I'm going to write the questions myself next, next time. time. Then, next time. A win is a win. <laughs> it's very, very precious to me. <laughs> Trophies in the post. Emily, Maggie, thank you very much. And now, as promised, it's time to talk TV. And we're doubling down this week with uh, not only The Guardian's Rebecca Nicholson, but also The Guardian's Sam Wollaston. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. <laughs> doubling, doubling down. What's doubling down? Doubling down. I believe it's a, it's a blackjack term. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, not entirely appropriate. It's a kind of negative, <laughs> negative doubling up. Is it? If you get, I think it's eleven or twelve or twelve or thirteen, you should really double down because yeah. it's a good hand, I believe. You're I say this, this is a good hand. I say, I'm saying for, this is a very TV good chat. hand. Yeah, yeah. I want two more cards. That's what I'm saying. Uh, yes, I uh, played on the one dollar a table tables in Las Vegas once. And what, what's the dollar? To, is that just for cheapskates? It's me and Grannies, <laughs> which is no disrespect to Grannies, uh, but you do get free drinks. Uh, right, move on. So, what? We, <laughs> um, this week, I think because we've uh, because both of you have seen it, let's start off with the taste. The Nigella Lawson TV sensation on Channel Four. Yes. Did it taste good? I was quite disappointed, I have to say. I was looking forward to seeing Nigella on telly again. I love Nigella on telly as a rule, and will even watch Christmas reruns on the Food Network when it is not Christmas time. That's how much I love oh. her. That's how much. But I found this to be quite messy it seemed to be shot as if it was an american show so a lot of the contestants recapped what we had just seen and did that annoying thing where something happens and then you get a contestant talking to camera and saying this thing happened yeah i've seen that i saw that five seconds ago i don't it's wasting time and it was surprisingly unexciting it didn't really keep my attention for the full hour i wanted it to but it didn't Sam, did it stimulate your palate? The fundamental problem with it is it's a bit like the voice, but watching someone taste something isn't the same as listening to someone singing, so you don't get that kind of shared experience thing. And I thought the format was a bit of a mess. I thought Nigella, who, again, I love, is I thought she was awkward with the normal people. I thought the other two were <laughs> good, um, and I thought, you know, c- compared with John and Greg, they actually were interesting about food. And Nigella's been in the news recently, so you thought that might have fed into the ratings, but uh, well, two million on the first night down to a million on the second night, I think, so, you know. Really? Maybe, the only way is down. Yeah, maybe it's... Uh, I mean, people... Viewers aren't stupid, so it's not a very exciting show. 
I don't think I'll be back either. No. But will he be back to the Sport Relief Bake Off, which is 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 a, is a cookery show you can watch because it's all for charity? I think it's a real testament to the strength of the format of the Bake Off that it works regardless of Despite. the fact that even, I mean it doesn't work as well because Mel and Sue aren't presenting it Omar uh, who does Jalili. it? Omar Jalili uh, no Omar Jalili oh. is presenting it he's not, as, he's not you really need their excitement to keep it going oh, however have you seen any of these Sam? I saw the first one which uh, I think Mel did produce oh, Dill, Dill present the first one yeah. right what, what, what I found odd about it was it's sport relief and there was only there was one person connected with sport otherwise there were two actors and yeah. there was one Johnny Vaughan Johnny Vaughan, exactly, who did the comedy uh, grill-off, basically. He couldn't switch on the other I mean, it is just a celebrity version, isn't it? With it is, really yeah. tacked on. But the, um, the thing that I thought last night watching it uh, was that it remains the most middle-class thing that's ever been on TV. I was laughing my head off at Emma Freud having some sort of baking mishap and just thinking, this is so middle-class. Yeah. But yeah, it was very funny. That's she burnt a hole in the carpet. Baking is a fairly, unless we're talking about crystal meth, I guess, but it is a fairly middle-class thing Maybe to do. Maybe that's it? what they'll do for the next one. Yeah, that would, that would be a bad, show. Break, great yeah, the Great British Break Bad, break bad Off. <laughs> I burnt a hole in the carpet once, but with an iron. Uh, this uh, is with a saucepan, uh, so okay, yeah. it was very circular. I was ironing a shirt on the floor, and then I put the iron down, and I tried to lift it up and thought it had become very heavy, <laughs> but became aware that it was, in fact, stuck to the carpet. <laughs> Good times. Never paid the deposit um, on, that, <laughs> on that rented property. But, Sam, you, now you've watched, uh, the, rare you get to say this, you've watched two uh, comedy debuts in the same week, both of which were very funny. Yeah, I like them both. Um, uh, House of Fools, uh, Vic and Bob's. First look, it is a sitcom, because... It feels like a 1970s sitcom. You've got canned laughter or studio laughter, whatever it is. You've got bad puns. You've got people coming in. You've got slapstick. But because it's Vic and Bob, it's kind of knowing, and it's just their take on it. And it's and it has their sort of. It's it's just a vehicle for their bonkersness, and it's just charming. I think, and it's got Matt Berry in, who I think is probably the funniest person on TV right now. And the other the other uh, new comedy, a young person's thing, because uh, it's on BBC Three. Something called Uncle. Uncle, yeah, which is Nick Helm, who's a comedian and a singer songwriter. And again, the setup is not particularly original. You've got a sort of two people thrown together by circumstance. It's very well done. It has a bit of um, lunacy in it as well. Nick Helm breaks into song. Uh, it's a bit rude. It's a, it's an uncle and a young dweeby boy. He he takes him off to strip clubs and inappropriate things. And it's again, that's. Very funny. Thanks to the joy of the iPlayer, you can watch them both still, probably, depending on if you, how long you wait to listen to this. Uh, and Ameri- uh, America. Uh, America, you've been to Rebecca uh, last week, so we should ask you, what did you watch when you were over there? Well, you may have noticed that the TV lair is slightly dusty and uh, there are milk bottles piled up outside the door. That's because I've been away. I went to the TCAs in The, the TCAs? The TCAs, Television Critics association <laughs> i'm assuming associations yeah where they it's a very kind of un-british way of approaching tv they have these huge name panels and all of the journalists go and sit and listen and tweet from it and it's where they announce things like the newsroom's last series um thank god that boardwalk empire was being cancelled that justified all of that stuff all happens there they do it twice a year i went to the hbo one to see what new stuff they've got coming up I saw a few new episodes of Girls, which has been on in the States already, but is on here on Monday. Very funny. 
um, a lot funnier than previous series, I would say. Yeah, the first two episodes in particular were hysterical. What's different about this one from, from the last time? I thought it was less... Well, you should be asking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rebecca, what's... I quite like it, actually. What's, what is, what's different uh, about this from, from last time? So as a man who's never watched Girls. <laughs> um, well, Lena Dunham is less at the centre of it, so oh. far, anyway. And that, that, would, that would be a bad thing for me. Well, it's, I don't think it is, because she's still in it, and she's still very present, <clears throat> and that character is very present, but... It almost seems like an act of generosity to give the funniest lines to the other characters. So the first episode is about Jessa. The second is about Shoshana. And both of them are very, very funny, but in a slightly different way. Is Jessa um, the annoying British one? She is, yeah. Yeah, I find yeah. her really annoying. Yeah, well, you might still find her annoying after this episode, but very funny. So that was great. I'm, uh, uh, I thought it got quite dark in the last series and not necessarily in a way that made me enjoy watching it. I saw, I watched it. Enjoyment's not the right word. I very much enjoyed these new episodes, so... I'm all in favour of new girls. Uh, yeah, that's how I feel about the bridge. Yeah. Enjoy at the time, but, <laughs> but feel faintly depressed. Well, thank you very much, Rebecca. We'll, uh, we'll hear more about the, uh, your US experience next week. And also, of course, thanks to Mr. Sam Williston. You're welcome. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to all our guests, who are Emily Bell, Maggie Brown, Sam Williston and Rebecca Nicholson. Uh, you can leave your thoughts on our, on our show on our Facebook wall or our blog, wherever that is. Or you can tweet me at johnplunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Mr. Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag-and-drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN.